Hello and welcome to another episode of the NudgeCast. My name is Phil Bean. I'm your host and I'm the co-founder and president at Nudge. And today I have maybe bad news, maybe good news for all of you. Here's the news. It's that we have learned that traditional outreach models for population health management are tragically flawed and broken and we've decided we're going to fix them. So that is a big, bold goal, but you know we really passionately believe here at Nudge that engagement comes first, and um, in order for any you know desired healthcare inter- interventions to be effective to get outcomes, obviously you need to be able to engage that person first. And before you're engaging that person, you need to capture them via outreach. And we've been looking at you know what our partners are doing in order to kind of enroll the right people in their programs. And there are a lot of companies that are struggling with this, and it's it's hard. It's not, um, you know, it's not obvious for sure, but you know, this just happens to be kind of in our sweet spot with a methodology that is kind of built into our engagement strategies that also is highly relevant to outreach. So what we're talking about today is basically engagement-focused outreach, what that looks like, and also we're going to kind of wrap that around the major pitfalls that we're seeing today in the busted and broken world of traditional outreach for population health management. Let me go ahead and get over to the interview here. Here I am talking to, got the input of Dr. Steve Firemilk, our chief science officer, and Matt Essex, our kind of academy professors over here on uh, this topic of uh, the pitfalls of, of traditional outreach. So here is the interview right here with Dr. Steve and Matt. All right, we're here again with Dr. Steve Firemilk and Matt Essex, the Academy professors. Um, and I'm sure you guys have several other cool names at this point. Um, but today we really wanted to talk about a lot of the pitfalls and false assumptions we're accounting when we're working with um, population health um, management providers, um, any organization that's um, working on a, a health improvement program, all the, all the pitfalls and false assumptions that we're running into within the outreach and enrollment process. Um, traditional outreach enrollment is incredibly flawed, it turns out, or it certainly seems like it to us. And so we wanted to start going through kind of, you know, how it typically works, what we've seen, and, and what we might suggest needs to be added or introduced to the process. So I have two great guys here to talk about that with me. I guess... Let's start at the top, guys, and Dr. Steve, I guess I'd be interested to get your input on this, just starting with the easiest question possible. The goal of traditional enrollment campaigns and outreach campaigns seems to be just to enroll as many people as possible. So we're literally starting at the top with what could be the wrong goal. What do you think about that, Dr. Steve? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting and, and very depressing way to think about it, <laughs> because in reality, the, the goal is to try to get people healthy so that uh, um, they decrease their risks and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the traditional approach is, okay, how do we do that? We do that by enrolling people into our program, and we try to get as many people as possible enrolled. So so traditionally, we're, you know, we have a population and then we see that big population and we get information either through analytics or uh, some other um, way with our data to say, oh, these people 
uh, have a chronic care issue, they need, um, they have a high risk factor. We need to, uh, you know, get those people. We need to go out and outreach and try to uh, get them to sign up for our program. And unfortunately, I mean, it's a good thing, but unfortunately, not everyone is going to be ready for an, uh, a program to decrease a risk. And, and Matt has a great way of putting this, and I'm, I'm not going to steal his thunder. I want Matt to tell, to tell everybody you know, his thoughts on, on you know, people who have this problem. Matt, you know what I'm talking about, right? You mean the problem of uh, not being willing to follow any program that's thrown at them? <laughs> yes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you're saying that might be a bad assumption? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it, you know, my, my thoughts on this are like we talked about before is from a very high level, you know, uh, the, the challenges that exist in healthcare, you know, um, the the absence of a lot of uh, focus on behavioral science and behavioral change theory and and all those things that that have been studied and documented and published that that surround the ideas of you know why do human beings change what what is the <clears throat> impetus for the change what uh, what is the best way to approach people that are um, you know in a state where they're clearly making uh, lifestyle decisions that are harming them and they probably know it. That's the first problem. Mm -hmm. The first false assumption we often make in healthcare is that, is that the consumers have no idea or the patients have no idea what's going on. They have no idea that, you know, uh, eating, you know, sugar, uh, for every meal and, you know, uh, buckets of ice cream and, and liters of soda that they just don't know that that's going to, you know, harm, be harmful for their health in any, in any regard. Um, and so we take this posture like, oh, well, we just need to inform them. We need to see our, our the experts need to put together a program. And, and certainly if we do that and it's a good program and we put it in front of them, why wouldn't they want to adopt it? You know, and so that's kind of the the I think the, the thought process that sometimes goes into creating these things. It's, it's nothing, nothing wrong with the program. I don't know if you'd, you'd agree, Dr. Steve, other than there, there's a complete absence of thought that goes into the behavioral side of things. Yeah. And I, I, what you're getting at is it's usually a one size fits all approach. Now that is changing. It's definitely changing when we have some individual uh, connections between health coaches and patients or members or nurses and patients and members. But even within those connections, using the, the same approach that you inform them, you give them a list of things to do and you, they will do those things, and therefore they will get healthy. And if they don't do those things, and there is something wrong with them, or and it's definitely not the program or the approach that was was given them. So there's a, a roadblock that's put up. And when you when you look specifically at the process of just outreach, and the goal being to sign as many people up as possible, many times those people that sign up just want to if you're on the phone, they want to get you off the phone. So they mm -hmm. say, sure, I'll do this. And that sends up a lot of red flags um, moving forward. Um, or they, um, they just, you know, hang the phone up right away or don't do any connection or, or uh, will just completely get negative because many people are unfortunately resistant because of, 
you know, some of the behavior change issues they and we've all had in the past with, with not succeeding and so on. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to start naming these maybe pitfalls and assumptions as we go through them, because I feel like we maybe just hit on like five in one little short segment there. So let's try to review some of that. Enroll as many people as possible. I think we could call that, you know, I think that comes from a place where, you know, organizations set up success metrics, maybe internally Mm. for different um, uh, roles within the process. Um, And just hitting enrollment numbers, maybe like a a false success metric. So we could have a a success metric pitfall here that we've covered. Um, Matt, you touched on, Matt touched on the kind of assumed motivation of everyone to make a change if they need to, or, or to participate in a program. Um, So that's a false, I guess, motivational assumption. Um, We got the kind of, False assumption that knowledge, lack of knowledge is the problem. Uh, so that's at least three. Um, and probably kind of piggybacking off another one, the assumption that there's sort of a, a perfect program assumption or like a, a pr- one-size-fits-all program that fits everybody. I think that might cover all of them. Is it, do you think I got all of them there? Yeah, I, th- I think you, 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 hit, you hit them. And, and as we move forward with this podcast or other ones, I'm sure – We'll address we'll, we'll address more of them. You know the 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 interesting part of this whole process is that the health professional does uh, have a very uh, altruistic, if you will, motive of helping someone get healthy, mm-hmm. and that's wonderful. But when when I speak to groups or individuals that are health professionals, I'm always urging them to you know try to think a different way, try to open their mind. And this also goes up the chain of command when it talks about measuring of success for a program. And what you mentioned is the first one being the metric of signing up as many people as you can. That, that is a fallacy because it actually can lead to a logjam of a lot of energy and time and hours and money being put into, the, uh, into individuals in the wrong way. For example, a nurse or a health coach who has an individual signed up who really isn't ready to fully engage with them and make some changes because of every because of things happening in their lives, and yet they're scheduling appointments with them, calling them up, um, you know, uh, you know, maybe giving, maybe connecting once in a while, but not be having them fully engaged. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of wasted time as opposed to having that person focus those types of energies on people who are in that, that engagement uh, position. And then using different wording and language and nurturing for those others who aren't quite ready. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's probably speaks directly to, you know, anyone in a management role running these programs or in charge of, you know, utiliz- utilization enrollment. Um, that's probably a ton of wasted resources. Um, you know, from just the, like you said, the time spent on people who aren't ready to do anything. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something that definitely needs to be addressed. And I think people will um, hear very clearly when you, when you say it. So, Matt, were, were you going to say something? Yeah, I'll hit on a fifth one that we haven't talked about yet that's a really big one that ties into all of this is uh, a, a lot of times the, the, um, uh, the thought is, is, okay, well, we just need – we just need an incentive to get somebody started into a mm-hmm. program. So, 
So there's, there's a lot of, uh, uh, what we see a lot of and have for years is there's, there's a ton of incentives going on as it relates to population health management. And uh, so what we do is we create, we, we put out an incentive and then it, it, they use that to drive signups, um, initial signups with people. So then as Steve's saying, you get this log jam of people that you're trying to sort through and at the end of the day, you know, the vast majority of them are probably just signing up to get the incentive. Um, they're not ready to change. They're, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they have no in intrinsic motivation other than they just want whatever the prize is. And if you look at the behavioral research on incentives, I mean, it, it, there, there is some usefulness to them, but, but never from, a, from a <clears throat> a, uh, any sort of significant change perspective or long-term type of change perspective. In fact, there's the vast majority of the, of the research that, that I've read suggests that if you're trying to use incentives to motivate people to change over the long term or make any sort of significant change in their lives, uh, it's very, very counterproductive. And some research I've read says that it actually can take things back the wrong direction. So, mm -hmm. I don't, Dr. Steve, do you have yeah. any? Yeah, that, that's spot on because once you remove the incentive, then there's no real reason and there was no real uh, behavioral reason for that individual to make to make the change. And what Matt mentioned is all, is also true on the converse that it, it can have some benefit with opening the door to some people who may not open the door. The important part is the message right after that door is open. And that is a critical part because a, a vast majority of those people, that incentive is just a, a, a way to get to a prize and maybe get a redu reduction in my rates, maybe to get a, um, a gift card at the end of a quote-unquote program completion, where in reality, they're just going through the motions. However, if that door is open and the health professional who's engaging with them on the, you know, the first, the first uh, uh, communication is probably the most critical with them, is trying to see, okay, is it the incentive that is the only driver? Is it the incentive that's opened the door? And can I use my art and my science that I know as a health professional to engage them, to move them in a direction that they become more intrinsically motivated and have a real inner desire to make the change, and um, uh, which will allow them to engage and, and slowly move forward. So, you know, going back to how this relates to signing up, you know, signing up, uh, the, the real goal should be signing up people who are intrinsically motivated and then mm -hmm. help those other ones, nudge those other ones forward. Because um, if, you're, if you're opening the door with an incentive and you're not then qualifying them to see what type of touches or engagement or outreach messages they should get, then you're, you're um, making it even more difficult because now you've got a significantly uh, greater number of people signed up, but most likely they are not ready to make any uh, real connection and engagement and change. Right. Yeah. And outreach, I mean, we're talking about outreach and, and enrollment and specifically traditional outreach methods, but I mean, no matter what your outreach process is going to be a communication process. These are all communications, whether they're going out via, you know, mailers, phone calls, emails, whatever that yes. they may be. Um, so in order to make these outreach efforts effective, you know, there's some things that, we think you need to know that you would not know yet in a traditional outreach campaign where you're just kind of 
uh, kind of taking a shotgun approach in, in mm-hmm. many ways. Um, and Steve, you've actually developed something that's pretty interesting and I won't make you try to go through all of it off the top of your head, but um, a summary of it is basically that your, your ability or your, your influence or your ability to engage your, your engagement power increases with kind of the more types of information you can gather on a population or individuals um, kind of before yeah. you enroll them in a program and connect them to, you know, a coach or care manager or, or whoever that may be. Um, so I wanted to maybe go through a couple of those and, yes. and we can, we can talk about them as we go. Um, but, you know, we've talked a lot about readiness already. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you want to just give kind of a high level yeah. of readiness, Steve. Yeah. So, so there's um, probably, you know, uh, four or five different components that uh, when applied correctly, your, your power of your engagement increases. Mm-hmm. And when the, the more information you have which within each one of these allows you to engage that individual in a more uh, pointed manner, in a more specific manner, where you have this matched, uh, where, you, where you have a matched message, where you're, uh, you're, there's a trigger with um, what you're saying that, that resonates with them and, and develops, if you will, a, a bond. And um, this is so important. So when you look at readiness... Um, you know, the trans-theoretical model, most of you all are uh, aware of that. And uh, it's not the only, and I always want to tell people, it's not the only gauge of uh, the power of engagement, but it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely a, a big part of it. And so, you know, 50 to 60, it's probably like 60% of the, you look at the literature and it's, it, it varies, um, but about 60% of the people that you will be connecting with are not ready to be taking action Mm -hmm. and so if you're presenting action programs to them then they're going to turn it off and um, are not are are actually going to have pushback so when it comes to enrolling having information on specifically you know some readiness pinpointed readiness questions or or uh, ways of finding that out can have a significant play a significant impact on the language and the messaging that you use to get them to move I shouldn't say to get them, to get them you know, to intrinsically start to feel, mm-hmm. to move themselves towards this. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I will step back and preface this. You know, uh, I talk to a lot of healthcare professionals and you, you uh, interject behavior change and some people automatically put up, you know, their eyes start to, to drift back and they're like, yeah, right, behavior change, you know, uh, getting them to intrinsically be motivated. But, you know, if we were really good at this whole healthcare um, change and people joining programs getting healthy, we'd have the healthiest country in the world right now because there are so many programs mm-hmm. and so many great people out there that want to help other people get healthy. But there has to be a different way to approach this. And as Matt said, when you go to the literature, it's, it, it's, a lot of it is couched in behavior change models like the trans theoretical model. But without those, you're really just playing lip service to helping people get healthy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, that, so, readiness for change is, is an important part of it. Of yeah, course. that's got to be, I, I'd say, I guess, the overriding principle within this process of what you need to understand um, about these people who you're trying to engage and should be, you know, a big determinant in who you yeah. want to actually enroll. Um, but then, yeah, but then the one, the one before that that I, I do want to bring up and it was, was touched on at the beginning was understanding the reason why someone wants to be healthy, mm-hmm. you know, 
and or, or understanding someone's reason for what's important to them. And this is another one of those things where people's eyes glaze over. Well, I have a program. They should want to be healthy, so they should join my program. But in reality, people have many, many reasons. I used an example on a recent training session where I had a patient who I've been working with for, for many years. And, and, um, and it wasn't a goal to, to, for me to get him healthy. That's not my goal. My goal was to help him understand you know, and, and intrinsically become motivated to the reasons why he would mm-hmm. want to be healthy. And the connection we finally made was he wants to sing the rest of his life. And he knows that if he has a stroke, that's over. And his spark in life is gone. So now this has opened up so many doors. He's engaging with me much more. Um, He's he's showing more change because he finally found his reason why he wants to make some lifestyle changes. And there are a lot of them that are relating to his his, um, uh, risk factors. He has finally realized that. So mm-hmm. I, I don't consider him a failure because it actually took a few years. It was not a failure because we always talk about the long term of this. And um, he's, he's going to be a huge success story for himself. I can see it. Yeah, that's a fantastic example. So, and, and you can just see so directly, you know, why we're talking about engagement power here. And once you get someone to, once you basically find the why, you can reference that in an ongoing way as a, a coach. and. Mm-hmm and really kind of use that as, as the basis of all your communication. Um, and Matt yeah. does a great job of this with, um, with his, uh, I mean, he's got a lot of expertise, but the one ex- expertise in the area of sarcopenia, and I know you weren't ready to say anything about that, Matt, but um, when you work with people, I see it. I see what uh, the why is at the center of everything you guys do. Yeah, I'm always ready to speak about sarcopenia, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, it's your the approach that you're talking about, and in, in, in ours is is identical. And it's really just it's the it's the difference in understanding from from a, an outreach perspective and an engagement perspective. You know, it, it's dealing with you know intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators. You know, and and I think from a broad stroke perspective, a, a lot of people in healthcare seem to still believe that ex, extrinsic motivators are the answer that mm-hmm. we got to just dial in on, you know, it's all testing. It's this, that programs, you know, and that's, what's going to drive change. And, and it's been disproven for quite a lot, a lot of decades now, not just years, you know, that, that that's not actually what, what drives behavioral change. It's actually more just connecting to the person's pre-existing intrinsic motivators. So like, like uh, Dr. Steve just said with his example, and we see this all the time, you know, is if you focus on, you know, the stuff that often is important to the clinician or the provider, you know, the, you're, you're often going to get the person kind of feeling like, okay, this isn't connecting with me. But if all of a sudden you shift it and your outreach strategy, and, and this is certainly what we do at Nudge, you know, as we, as we shift the conversation to, you know, trying to discover what they already care about very deeply, and then you simply connect what the value of, of what you're offering to them to the thing they already care about, or sometimes it's a multitude of things and, and all of a sudden magic happens and you can kind of understand why it's like, duh, you know, why, why don't we get, <laughs> but you know, it, it, we don't, we don't get this. It's, it's interesting to see like in marketing and um, 
so many other industries that aren't really dealing with with health and life or death type of types of things like we do in healthcare. You know, they seem to get this. Marketing trends are moving, you know, full steam ahead in this direction. Everything's mm-hmm. coming down to behavioral trends and things like that. You've got one thing that popped in my mind, and I don't know why. It could just be because I didn't get much sleep last night. So forgive me. But, but one example that popped in my mind about about an uh, an industry that's that's doing pretty amazing things in terms of matching and communicating and to, you know, to draw people in is, is, uh, you think about what's happened with like online dating, you know, 10, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, nobody yeah. even thought about doing that. Um, but if you pay attention to them and I, and I'm, I'm married full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is listening. I'm not talking experience, but I'm saying that, they communicate very specifically. And if you, if you pay attention to their message, what caught my attention is they're talking about behavior like yeah. constantly and they're designing, you know, their systems to be behaviorally matched and to draw people in from that perspective. And it's not, you know, and, and they're, and they've had like the e-harmonies, especially have had just tremendous success with this in a place where again, like 10 years ago, people would have thought like, that's idiotic. Like nobody's going to do that, you know? Yeah. So that is an amazing example. I can't say I, say I saw the eHarmony example coming, um, but <laughs> no, that that works really well, and it's amazing. I mean, even just in every commercial you see, I mean, all kinds of potential whys are referenced over and over again for you know really finding that ideal person to make your yeah. life better, basically. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a fantastic example. But keep kind of continuing along um, with some of these kind of drivers um, that give you more engagement power. Steve, you also talk about decisional balance, which I think is, is yeah. that kind of comes from the trans theoretical model also, right? Is that, well, yeah, that's so closely it's, tied? It's closely tied. It, it's part, it's part of uh, a more, if you, a deeper dive in some things that we can do as health professionals to get people to, I hate to say get people. It's not, I, I apologize for that terminology. Mm-hmm. To have people realize that um, there are other ways of looking at things and mm-hmm. you can move the decisional balance from, say, the, having so many negatives of changing. Uh, you know, it could be as simple as blood pressure. You know, that one of the things is, you know, hypertension, you want them to check their blood pressure and, and, and they may say, well, there's so many negatives to this. How am I going to write this all down? How is my doctor even going to look at it? Probably not. You know, it, I, I don't have the time to do it. I'm always stressed out when I do it. And, you know, you think of all those negatives and then you're thinking, well, what's the only positive? Well, I don't know. I don't know what the positive is. Maybe I, my doctor could adjust my meds, but that, so there's not enough reason for them to make changes. So mm-hmm. as health professionals, we can help with the awareness of that and help them understand it, internalize this and how it connects with their why again that to get to that point, to get to where you can sing for, for, you know, you can sing the rest of your life and not have a heart attack and strokes, where you can walk your granddaughter down the aisle, those types of things start with some little things with your health. And mm-hmm. so let's talk about the potential pros, the positive things. And what we see is as the shift, as, we, as people that we're working with start to internalize and see that they have less negatives and or even equal negatives and positives and start then gradually start to get more positives, they will definitely open up more to this intrinsic motivation, this more reason why to engage with you in your program or in your uh, guidance and advice. 
So decisional balance is very important. Um, even in and of itself is very important as a gauge. Uh, mm-hmm. When when we talk to people and 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 find out you know uh, what the positives and negatives that they see in in this whole process, right? And that's very closely tied to you know people who are in those early state earlier stages of readiness for change yeah. or really you know over focused on the or hyper sensitive yeah. to the cons and and maybe yep. need some reinforcement of those those pros on the list as well to kind of balance things out. And they, and they may actually, unfortunately, have had some bad experiences in the past mm-hmm. that have overshadowed some of the positives. And I know Matt would agree with this. There's, there's a lot of uh, negative that uh, people perceive when it comes to behavior change. And so when we look at the, if we're sitting up at late at night, you know, watching TV and the commercials about all these great health programs and these get shape ones, lose, get in better shape, lose weight you know, go from here to from looking like this to looking like that. And then you go to the regular population and pretty much no one is like that. Um, and so they've seen all these things that they've failed at, that even though they've had some real successes, like maybe gained muscle mass and lost body fat, but their scale weight didn't change, but no one ever talked to them about that. They felt like they were a failure. Mm-hmm. So the, those are ways that the health professional can interject when we know where they're at, interject in the right way. That's yeah, that's, that's a great one as well. Um, so we've got at this point finding, finding the why we've got identifying the readiness stage. We've got, um, addressing some decisional balance issues. Um, now we get into a couple more that may sound more, I guess, obvious, but, um, are very important and, and pretty interesting as well. The next one I think you had Steve was confidence. Yeah. Um, confidence is it ties into this whole process as well and it goes back to kind of the example that i just had too mm-hmm. that um if if someone's had uh, recurring failures like most of us in life have we're not successful in everything we do so you know that old adage you know when you get knocked down you gotta pull yourself back up and try again well it's not as easy as it sounds uh, when when this happens and a lot of health professionals aren't aren't um, oftentimes uh, considering this, that someone may have had some, uh, has, has left very low confidence in specific health behavior areas, could be as, is, as simple as um, uh, going back to blood pressure, checking your you know, glucose, those types of things where they haven't had success with it and they, and they don't have uh, very much confidence in their ability to do it. So this is another area where the health professional, if they understand this person and why they might have a lower confidence. This is a great way to address that to get them to really quickly start to get some confidence because they know they're working and they're going to be engaging and partnering with the right uh, health professional. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And a lot of that is really right. Communicating in ways that helps them internalize the idea that they're, you know, in control and capable of making these changes. Right. It's, it's very yeah. like self-efficacy is basically another word for this. Right. Yes. It, it very much is. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the autonomy. And, and uh, Matt, you know, the, the thing that we're getting to with all of this, too, has to do with, um, uh, you know, the perception of that your uh, recipient, the perception of the, uh, of the patient or the client, the member, what they have in the message that you're giving them. And, you know, we have this, you know, you have a great program, you know, you try to let them know the value of it. 
but how they perceive what you're saying may just put them back into this negative cycle unless you're using the right wording. And I know that you had some great examples. I don't know if you want to share them or you want me to about, you know, words that are commonly used and ones the that, land, uh, yeah. Mine words. yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. I, and I, I can certainly add to it. No. So uh, words like should, ought to, must, have to, need to, those are, you know, very controlling pressure words. It mm -hmm. supports yeah. uh, how can like, I get? You, yeah. you corrected yourself. That's one of the hardest ones, yeah. you know, especially if you've had any, any, any healthcare training is it's so hard to say, oh, I need to get this person to, it's yes. so natural, but then, you know, yes. But yeah, what we need to realize is that when we, when we throw these things out there, that they're not what are considered autonomy supportive words. Um, mm -hmm. no. They're not putting the power with the individual and in order for long-term change to occur, they need to ultimately take charge of their own health and, and engage from that perspective. So, yeah. And uh, even, I think even just using the word autonomy, like you are, Matt is a great example of a, a word that is empowering to, for, for example, specifically if you're working with an older population as you do, um, you know, that's, that's obviously a, a key driver and something that's pretty empowering right there, speaking to autonomy. Um, but yeah, I think you were getting at just, you know, making sure that communication is more collaborative in nature, right? For sure. I mean, yeah, you know, discussions that surround, you know, compliance and things like that often are very top down and they're perceived in a top down fashion from the person, the individual, you know, and again, I, I think we've said this in previous podcasts, like think of the last time that you like to be talked to that way. You know, I don't even think we liked it as children. You know, we certainly don't <laughs> like it as, you know, grown adults that have raised children that have, you know, some of the people we work with have like 42 grandchildren, you know, like they don't want people, you know, especially, uh, uh, even though, you know, even though I'm not anymore, they considered me a, a young whippersnapper, you know, like they don't want to <laughs> to them and tell them, you yeah. know, how to do things, you know, so yeah, you have to involve them in the, in the conversation. And what Steve was saying about, um, you know, uh, before, you know, I, I think sometimes we lose sight of, you know, just again, just back up from, from, from perspective, we can get lost in, in terminology and science and all that kind of stuff. And, but if we just take a step back and look at this from just a, purely human perspective, even your own perspective, it's a great way to see it because we're all human beings at the end of the day. And I think there's a lot of things we have in common. And one of them is like, we, we don't ever lose the, the desire for encouragement, you know, just basic things like, you know, encouragement and, and, and little wins and momentum that's built up from those little wins that can turn into bigger wins, you know? So, you know, just because we get older doesn't mean that we don't need any encouragement. And one thing I find with the older you get typically is the less, you know, they're like, they become converse. So the older you get, usually the less encouragement you're getting. And a lot of times you're getting <clears throat> communications that are, that are very top down that they're treating you like a child mm -hmm. again. And, mm -hmm. and they're, you know, unintentionally so, but, but mm -hmm. they're, uh, you know, coming at people from, from the standpoint of, uh, in a, in a way that that's perceived again, is very discouraging. You know, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. And, you know, you, you continue that down, the older you get, you know, um, the mentality can certainly become in healthcare that you become kind of a lost cause and nobody's encouraging you. Everything becomes, you know, well, you're getting too old to do this and you're, you know, Oh, I know you really enjoy, 
you know, um, what was the example you used about singing? Oh, I know you really used to enjoy singing, you know, Mr. Smith, but, you know, I mean, come on, let's be realistic. You're, you know, in your 70s, you know, now and your <laughs> voice has changed. And, you know, do you really think that that's, you know, some, and I hear this all the time with, with you know, and the reason I'm pointing to this population that, that we work with a lot is because a lot of times you see in healthcare, the, the population that's, that's um, you know, sickest is often the oldest and we're struggling to deal with this aging population now and connect with them in, in ways that, that make a difference. That's one of the biggest problems we're having in healthcare in, in terms of population health management. And it's not, it's not just the people that are in the seventies, eighties, nineties and beyond, you know, it's, it certainly starts earlier. You know, if you're in, if you're in the workforce and you're a population health management company working with um, organization, employer organizations, you know, um, you've, you, the, 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 sh the numbers have shifted quite dramatically. So you're probably going to have, you know, kind of a, what they call an aging workforce and again, that means you've got people that are, you know, later in their careers and you have to communicate with them a certain way. And, and again, they'll turn off immediately if they feel like you're coming at them with this sort of top down, you do what I say type of thing. And they feel like they're being managed, you know. So, again, you've got to bring them into the discussion. You've got to create an autonomy supportive environment, first and foremost, and mm -hmm. realize that, you know, again, the, the best pro you can, you can have the best people in the world, the, the smartest, the most qualified, and you can get them together and you can tell them to create a program. But the, the program is not going to be the factor that drives uh, the long-term change. It's the people themselves that have to make their decision to do that. And so we have to create programs that are supportive of that. And if we don't, then we're not going. We can't expect to see the change, and that's what really what you see in terms of population health management is the is the numbers are abysmal, and what we're settling for, you know, and percentage wise in terms of outcomes and and things, people that actually stay with these with these approaches and programs long term. I mean, are, they're they're so low, but that's just because the bar has just continued to 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 go down and down and down, and and now we're saying, well, okay, it's not possible. It's not possible mm -hmm. to engage people in a yeah. in a uh, in, in a greater way. And so the best we can hope for is maybe a, a two percent, you know, a two percent, you know, long term, you know, kind of change factor. But again, what we're saying is to summarize, it's like, well, you can't really take that approach from a numbers or metrics perspective if if you've if you haven't followed best practices on the front end, you know. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I think a lot of forces too are kind of pushing. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Steve. But um, you know, pushing more of kind of like a checkbox mentality on the population yeah. health side as well. You know, um, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of regulation in healthcare that makes it challenging to not think of it as checking boxes to make sure you're doing things in a compliant way. Um, but there's also the kind of piecemeal introduction of a lot of different technology, which again kind of dehumanizes at least sets up the potential for dehumanizing the process quite a bit. And so, you know, I think one of the big challenges, one of the big places that people can make a difference in their population health efforts is really focus on focusing on humanizing the experience. And that's kind of one of the overriding themes of what we're saying here today. Yeah. And, and there's people out there saying, well, I've, you know, I've got X amount of people that, you know, they really engage with our program and they're very compliant with it. And, um, they're very uh, involved with our challenges, and they go beyond their incentives. Well, we would expect that. We would expect a small amount of the population that we're working with 
maybe 20 to 30% of them are those type of individuals who are ready to engage, have been engaging. They're really the healthier ones probably already. They're really the ones that are already leading a moderate to good healthy lifestyle. And so we're getting them into our programs um, and, uh, and, and doing a great job with them. It's what about the ones that, that we're, we're, can have the biggest impact on? And that's where this whole methodology comes in with this engagement-focused outreach is where, you know, we'll take the, the low-hanging fruit. We'll take the people that are, you know, higher confidence, have the knowledge, have all, all these um, other, uh, other areas, the decision of balance. Um, they have a great why. We'll take them and we'll work with them and strengthen it and help them through this. But what about the majority of people who aren't even close to that point? Those are the mm -hmm. ones that more likely need a little bit more direction from us in terms of intrinsically finding ways to become motivated and opening the door to uh, listening to them. I had a brother who went to, the, uh, to a uh, more of an integrative doctor recently, MD, and um, he came out of that high as a kite. He loved it because someone listened to him. He said, Steve, I'm 59 years old and no, nobody's ever listened to me like that about my health and mm -hmm. the importance of it and why he's going to Europe and this stuff and he wants to be healthy and yada, yada. So, um, so it, it's what Matt said. It, it, yeah, this doctor's awesome, but the most important thing that, that is going to engage someone like my brother is someone listened to him and connected with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's a good, just, just to compliment that real quick, because I know we have a diverse audience, uh, Phil, and, and don't mean to, uh, to take over your MC. I just, I just feel the need to, to mention that, you know, when we, if you have businesses out there that are in, you know, health and wellness, that you're, you're targeting people that are, you know, into um, fitness, you know, we're not necessarily speaking to you. I just, just wanted to clarify, yeah. like we're, we're this, uh, a lot of the points we're making today are more geared towards population health management, which usually the goal is in, in that space is to engage, try to engage the people that are, that are really struggling with their health that haven't, that, that, that generally are, there's a lot of challenges with figuring out how to, how to engage them, you know, and, and there's, and, and that's what we're, we're saying is that why we're doing this podcast is, is because, we feel like some of the approaches that we're seeing are just not even taking into consideration the, um, you know, the, the best practices that exist out there. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that, Matt. Appreciate it. Um, so yeah, for, for everyone out there in the population health management space, I hope this is some really interesting information. I hope you kind of have probably seen some of these um, pitfalls or false assumptions with the traditional approaches to outreach and enrollment. Um, but if you want to engage with us, for sure, reach out to us. You can email us directly to learn at nudgecoach.com um, or check out more information on the website, obviously, nudgecoach.com. Um, and we're going to deep dive on different aspects of this as well. Um, I know toward the end there, Steve, you were mentioning sort of the idea of a lot, of, you know, said earlier, maybe 60 to 65% of people not being really in these readiness stages. Um, so... And, and, and within these population health management initiatives, that's a lot of times pretty correlated to the types of people that you're actually trying to enroll in programs in the long term to manage conditions. So um, we want to definitely deep dive more in future episodes on, you know, how we can create, 
you know, effective nurturing campaigns to more effectively move those people forward or help more people realize kind of their reasons for wanting to participate in these programs. So I think that's where we can go from there, but thank you, Dr. Steve. Thank you, Matt. I think this was fantastic going through the pitfalls and also going through, you know, ton of the information on, you know, what you can learn about your population and audience and individuals and able to kind of empower your ability to engage them more effectively and get them enrolled in these programs. So thanks guys. And we'll uh, talk to you again next time. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. All right. If you guys enjoyed that interview with Dr. Steve Firemilk and Matt Essex, please go ahead and find your way to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Nudgecast first of all. And secondly, if you like what you're hearing, go ahead and give us a, a positive, maybe a five-star review, especially if you're on um, Apple Podcasts. Uh, those reviews, those ratings and reviews really help. Um, and if you have any questions for the show, any comments, or would like to see us or hear us to address any topics directly, uh, go ahead and shoot us an email to learn at nudgecoach.com. We'll respond to every one of those as always. And there's always new content on the nudgecoach.com website, guys. Pop over, check out the blog, uh, see what we're writing about this week. Um, we have a new article going up this week from our CEO, Mac Gamble. Um, so go over and check that out as well. And we'll see you again next time on the Nudgecast. Thanks again. Thanks again.